0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: I am Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Stay True, the new memoir from Hua Su, is a coming-of-age story about the writer's time in the University of California in Berkeley, where he tries to become a writer, and also a bit of a music snob. He builds a close friendship with another Asian-American student, Ken, very different from Hua, which he writes about in his book. All the previous times I had met poised, content people like Ken, they were white. It's one of those obscure parts of an already obscure identity that Japanese-American kids can seem like aliens to other Asians, untroubled, largely oblivious to feeling like outsiders. But Ken is killed in a robbery gone wrong, forcing Hua to grapple with the death of his friend. Hua Su is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor of literature at Bard College. Su serves at the executive board of the Asian American Writers Workshop. He was formerly a fellow at the New America Foundation and the Dorothy and Lewis B. Coleman Center at the New York Public Library. He is also the author of A Floating Chinaman, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific. In this interview, Juan and I talk about his story in Stay True, including his quote unbelievably non-stereotypical parents, his dive into college music, and his an attempt with Ken to put together an homage for the Barry Gordy produced martial arts film The Last Dragon. So, Juan, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian View Books podcast today. You know, you know, I I want to start by by talking about your parents. Um the memoir kind of kind of starts with the story of your parents, especially your father, and um I think how you how you bond through faxes, how you bond over music. Um, there's a great line, I think, I believe it's kind of near the end of your book, uh, where you reflect on what your parents went through in the U.S. And, and your gratitude for everything they've done, to which your father responds, you know, for you, we came for ourselves. Um, and, you know, you talk about how your parents were, I think, unbelievably non-stereotypical uh, regarding Asian parents. I wonder if you might kind of, I wonder if we, if we might start our conversation by talking about by talking about them,
0: sure. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, my parents came from Taiwan. Uh, they they came separately and they met in the states in the late sixties, early seventies. And you know, they had a pretty typical experience. I would say they came for graduate school. They fell in love. They got married. Uh, they had me eventually. And I think as a you know G- Asian American growing up in the states, you sort of internalize these tropes, whether you want to or not, about kind of first generation immigrant sacrifice and things like that. Um, you know, there's a feeling of indebtedness to the the the, the forebears who immigrated so that you could have a better life here. And I hadn't really reflected too deeply on what my parents went through until kind of late in life. And, you know, there was this moment where I where I was talking to them. I'm like, you know, I I want to thank you for all this sacrifice. And, you know, they were pretty blunt about how they didn't come to the United States for me. Um, they, they sort of came for themselves and I'm just sort of a, a byproduct of their time here. I think a lot of people probably have that experience and maybe that sense of indebtedness or that sense of um, sort of an inherited struggle. It's like a trope that you get through the culture, through sort of conversation, through literature, through film. But you know it doesn't have to be that way, and and I, I was very happy that my dad said that because it made me realize that I was trying to align our family experiences with sort of experiences I'd read about, and not necessarily their own experiences. Um, and and I think the same with notions of stereotype. You know, I do think my parents were stereotypical in some ways, but probably non-stereotypical in other ways. And a lot of times, you know, the degree to which you want to talk about that depends on if the other person recognizes that. So in the book, I say that my parents are unbelievably non-stereotypical to someone who I think is trying to type them in a way. But then again, with my Asian American friends, we would always sort of like dwell on the commonalities and the ways in which our parents were sort of stereotypical too.
1: So your memoir is is, is primarily about your time in college, um, which is where you kind of... Uh, where where you grapple with your Asian American identity, where you start off as a writer. Um, in fact, I wonder if you might kind of talk about uh, what started you on on the path to being a writer during your time in college.
0: You know, I don't I don't know that I I thought that I could become a writer. Um, I went to college at Berkeley. Um, I grew up in the South Bay, like Silicon Valley, in the eighties and nineties, and. You know, I think even though California is this place that provides so much um, for young people and it's just, you know, like it's a pretty uh, cosmopolitan place, it felt very removed from any of the kind of media metropoles. Like this, the idea of becoming a writer seemed pretty much impossible when I was in college. Um, I liked writing because I liked kind of having opinions. I, I would make zines and I would write for alt-weeklies and music magazines and I think I was just trying to figure out who I was. And I thought that who one was was determined by the things you liked, uh, by a sense of taste, by a sense of um, kind of how you related to the world. So writing what initially was just a way for me to figure that out, to kind of carve out a little space for myself uh, within the culture.
1: And, you know, you, you you talk about writing for music magazines, and I and I just want to... Highlight a few of my favorite lines from, from your memoir where you talk about music, uh, which are, I think, what is it? There's the line. Um, I realized maybe too late that all I wanted was friends listening to music with someone curious enough to ask what something was and the reciprocate by playing something by Styx or other artist I was far too cool to know. Um, Another great line was it? it was a sign of personal growth that I could be friends with someone who liked Pearl Jam this much. And those two lines just reminded me so much of my own time in college um, and talking about music with my friends. Uh, I will fully admit that I was the
0: person who liked the equivalent of Pearl Jam um, <laughs> uh, rather than the cool one.
1: But I just wanted well, to. What,
0: what was that when you were in college? What was the equivalent of that? Uh, basically anything that was in Guitar Hero. The video game, the, the music video right, hold, game hold is, is kind of the answer there. I didn't, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I I dropped out for a sec.
1: Um, well, for, for me, the, the equivalent of Pearl Jam, at least for me, was any, any song that was in Guitar Hero.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs>
1: and, yeah, I mean, I, and so, and so, I, yeah. And so I just want to talk about like, so like, I wonder if, I'm, if I get into kind of the relationship you had with music and with, um, I guess, alternative music, indie music, and, and how that kind of related to your, to your growth as a, I guess, both as a writer, but as someone kind of in that college community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm 45, which means that I was kind of The perfect age in the early 1990s to just kind of fall hook, line, and sinker for the alternative revolution. So, you know, I just got really into alternative rock and alternative film and independent film and all of these things that seemed to suggest like a different a different way of being, like different versions of being a guy, different versions of um, expressing uh, your enthusiasms, and so I think. Part of it, you know, I think when we're when we when we get into something, you're just really trying to figure out like how you feel, and you're you're searching for new ways of feeling and and new experiences of the world, and so yeah, when I when I got to college, I was very much the kid who was like making zines and wearing thrifted clothes and you know buying records that no one had heard of, uh, records sometimes CDs, but. You know, like I was very particular about my sense of taste, and I don't think that makes me particularly unusual in the mid nineteen nineties. But you know, it's something that um, I remember very vividly. It was just kind of how how judgmental I could be about other people's tastes and other people's whims, and just how I really steadfastly tried to avoid anything that was mainstream and I, I don't know i mean sometimes i talk about it with friends and maybe there's something there that pertains to you know being a minority being asian american and just trying to kind of figure out your place but from a position that you understand will always be kind of on the margins um uh There could be something there. I I hadn't really thought about it when I was a kid, but the older I get, the more I could see some sort of relationship there.
1: So you mentioned in your answer, kind of you, you were grappling with kind of being a minority, um, being Asian American. I think that's a, that's a great segue in talking about um, one of the most important people in your memoir, um, which is Ken, um, who is one of your closest friends going throughout college, you know, you write in your memoir how, you know, despite being a minority, despite being Asian American, Ken seems assured of himself, assured of who he is and kind of, I guess, who he is and what he is. Um, You know, how did that differ from your own understanding of what it meant to be Asian American?
0: That's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't say I was consciously grappling with it, I think it's something that I was learning to think more deeply about once I got to college. Uh, I think nowadays, if you're young, you have the luxury of maybe entering into some of these conversations earlier uh, just by virtue of having the internet. But I think at the time in the 1990s, like you, you sort of went to college to, to grapple with these questions and to learn that these were questions worth asking in the first place. Um, when I first met Ken, I found him to be sort of like unusually confident, uh, which is to say, probably just I was not very confident. And I thought he was just sort of aggressively mainstream as well, which is probably why I um, didn't go out of my way to become friends with him. But, you know, we were both Asian American too. He was Japanese American, I'm Taiwanese American. And I did find that distinction to be really fascinating just the fact that, you know, to 99% of people out there, um, we were probably, we probably seemed exactly the same, but you know, w- uh, we, we had like these, these very different relationships being American into American history and his family, um, was multi-generational and mine wasn't. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was just sort of like this really interesting person who, uh, appeared to be a lot like me but uh you you know i think when you're that age and and we're trying to figure out who you are you really fix on these kind of micro distinctions between you and your friends um and he's someone that i sort of projected a lot onto when we were friends and you know there's a
1: there's a turning point in your novel which is um which is that ken is ultimately killed in a robbery gone wrong and that kind of I mean, to say it's a big shock to you and your friends would be a massive understatement. Um, why Why did you want to explore that particular event um, in your memoir? What was it about that, that event that, I guess,
0: made it kind of a, a, a key point in your life? You know, I think I needed to write the memoir to figure out, mm. f- to figure that question out. Um, you know, it's something that I thought about a lot in the immediate aftermath. I mean, uh, you know, none of us, we were, most of us were 20 or 21, and none of us had really, I don't think any of us had really gone through anything like that. You know, people may have lost relatives or um, experienced other forms of loss, but, uh, you know, he was, he was, you know, carjacked and murdered uh, after a party that many of us had been at. And so I think there's something about the tragedy and the loss, but also like our proximity to it that made it seem, um, like this, um, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's sort of like, it it just seemed very intimate to us because we had been there and then, and then, you know, next thing we know this, this thing, terrible thing had happened. Personally, it really changed my relationship to writing. Like, I became really obsessed with writing afterwards. Uh, You know, like earlier when we were talking about the writing I'd been doing beforehand, a lot of it was just, you know, writing record reviews or or trying to, you know, interview people in order to, like, hear about their lives. But I became just much more fixated on writing as a place to go um, and as a place to kind of figure things out for myself. It wasn't necessarily something that showed up in a lot of the reporting or journalism or criticism I did over the, the sort of following 20 years. But it was always sort of in the back of my mind that um, there's just something about this moment in my life that changed me. I just couldn't really articulate what it was. Um, and as I've gotten older, I think I've had a gotten a better sense of what it was about his friendship and, um, the questions he would ask of me and the the questions I would ask of him that have lingered into my work today and and sort of just how I see the world. But I knew I, I knew I needed to write something in order to figure that out. I just didn't know at the time back in 1998 that I would actually be a writer. I thought I would just be like a, you know, an accountant or something doing this in his spare time. You know, in speaking of kind of Figuring things.
1: I mean, another kind of part of the book that that I remember kind of thinking back of everything I read in it. um, There's this time when you're when you kind of become a tutor, a mentor to um, a whole bunch of of high school kids. Um, And it basically sounds like uh, it was it was something you did that ended up helping or changing you more than it may or may not have changed the people you taught. Um, I wonder if you might, if you could talk a bit more about that and, and, and that experience in, I guess your, your, your personal growth in your, in your time at college.
0: Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, most of us just kind of, we all just kind of go through life and maybe there's some rhyme or reason to it. Maybe there's a narrative to it. Maybe there are these, um, uh, maybe things make sense in the moment, but, you know, in reality, we're all just trying to to kind of get by, right? And I think once Ken was killed, I began to think about. I, it was impossible not to think of his life as a narrative because it had, it had, it it ended, right? And so this it was this question of holding on to the past and holding on to these memories and trying to make sense of them. Um, I think as I was reflecting on that time in my life, uh, just being in college, thinking about. Politics, thinking about the Asian American community and how it's a sort of delightfully amorphous category and and sort of the possibilities within that, I started to kind of recognize that I was asking a lot of questions that, uh, you know, some of them were questions that were, some of them were extensions of conversations that Ken and I would have. Some of them were things that I did in order to sort of um, think about things differently. And so one of them was, as you mentioned, Tutoring at a at a, mentor, a youth mentorship center in Richmond, California. Uh, mostly, I guess, like middle school students, some elementary school kids, but they were all they were primarily Hmong and Mien, like Southeast Asian children of um, sort of refugees. And um, we had very little in common, you know. In my in my in my mind, we were all Asian American. You know, we were all kind of part of this community. They just didn't realize it yet. But in their minds, they probably felt like they had more in common with their black classmates or just sort of like other working class folks than with me, this like uh, middle class Taiwanese American kid from Berkeley. And so it was an experience that really, yeah, I mean, I think I probably got more out of it than they did um, in the sense that I was just there to, you know, help them with homework, drive them to the mall, do stuff like that. But uh, I was also tutoring that summer when Ken died and they provided a lot of solace and comfort and companionship and friendship um, in ways that they probably didn't understand they were doing as like 13 year olds.
1: You know, I, I have maybe one more question about, about, um, your story, uh, in, in stay true. Um, before I want to kind of maybe end with, with some bigger picture questions um i completely forgot to ask about uh about the film you can try to make um you, you yeah you mean, i mean i mean you you tell the story where where you stay up all night watching this um i mean the movie sounds bad <laughs> <laughs> uh but but it becomes this this i have not seen it um but it becomes this like this, this kind of touchstone for the for, for the both of you i wonder if you might kind of just uh and then you try to write your own screenplay about it. I mean, so, so what was it about this film? We didn't get very far, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, you know, like initially I was the person who was into like, uh, kind of esoteric, unpopular stuff. He was into mainstream stuff, but, you know, we would totally bond over, uh, you know, a lot of movies we watched or things that we, we both liked. We would take like way too seriously. And so one night when I was visiting him at home in, in El Cajon in Southern California, he showed me this movie, the last Barry Gordy's, the last dragon, uh, Barry Gordy is like the guy who founded Motown. And I guess this was part of like, uh, his, his, uh, move towards becoming an, a Hollywood impresario, but it's kind of this eighties. It's like a black exploitation influenced film about this young African-American martial arts enthusiast who goes by the name Bruce Leroy. Um, and all, everyone in this community just kind of thinks he's this total weirdo because he, he walks around in like kung fu robes and he sort of believes in this power called the glow. And he just sort of in search of enlightenment. And everyone just sort of ridicules him. Of course, he becomes this sort of like unlikely Luke Skywalker type hero over the course of the film. But, you know, it was just sort of this incredible film to watch. Staying, We stayed up all night watching it. There were these like Chinese American who played like the quote Chinatown youths, and they were the ones sort of speaking in in a sort of like, um, like the pat like in in a patois that that did not really fit what they looked like, and so it was just sort of um, this delightfully weird take on race, or at least that's how we read it. We became like really obsessive about this movie that probably isn't meant to be taken seriously, but I think. Those are the best kinds of experiences you can have with friends. It's just kind of going overboard, dissecting something. And then as a result, we, um, you know, for like a few weeks, we thought like, oh, we should make our own movie. Um, And so we made one, we tried to make one called Barry Gordy's Imbroglio, which uh, had nothing to do with the initial movie. It was more about kind of our own hijinks and our own kind of shenanigans. But, um, you know, I think it was just part of, this moment where we we just wanted to make something we wanted to see ourselves in the culture we wanted to uh see if it was possible to do something like that of course we didn't get very far i think we wrote like four or five pages of it but um it is something i think about a lot what what that movie could have been
1: um yeah you know it sounds like it sounds like a lot of projects that i tried to start in college i was like this is a great idea <laughs> <And> then, yeah <laughs> and then up two months later it's like oh i got another great idea you work on that instead um i so i i did want to end by kind of looking at i i guess kind of looking looking past state True and looking at the idea of or not the idea but kind of where asian-american i guess culture be it writing be it music be it um, movies. Uh kind of where you see that space being today, I mean yeah, at le- at least on on the commercial level, um, it sometimes seems like Asian American Asian American literature is starting to do quite well. Um, there are more Asian American TV shows, whether streaming or on networks or in movies. Um, obviously people have embraced Asian art of Asian origin, you know, be it K-pop, be it uh be it anime. Um, but obviously, I mean, that's all very commercial, and I think seeing that as some kind of success of representation is probably putting too much stock in 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 having, you know, having an Asian American Marvel superhero. But, you know, I wonder if if you had any thoughts about um, you know, as an Asian American writer yourself, kind of what your thoughts are about, I guess, about Asian American culture. Um, and whether you see it growing, whether you see it um, that there's more uh, more work that has to be done, whether you see audiences as being more receptive to works from minorities like Asian Americans, um, I guess now than maybe 10, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think when I was in my 20s, I mean, this is something that Ken and I would talk about a lot. And I write about this a lot in the book. Is just How impossible it seemed to us back then that any of the things that we kind of take for granted today would would one day happen. Um, As you said, you know, on television, film, literature, uh, there are, there's just more. You know, I think the audience has grown. I don't think it was only like other Korean Americans who watched Minari or other um, Asian Americans who watched Everything Everywhere all at once. Uh, So there's a lot of, you know, especially in the space of film and TV, I think there's just so much more and the audience has really grown. Um, I think it's exciting because it just means that there's more stuff to like, but also more stuff maybe to dislike or more stuff to, to be critical of. And I think that conversation is what pushes culture forward. And I think having that abundance kind of allows us to have more interesting conversations and so I think it's exciting I mean I I think about how like I I wrote my book it took me you know 20 some years to write my book I couldn't have published it at a different time not mostly because I don't think anyone would have understood that it wasn't meant to be you know a commentary on Asian American identity I think I'm, I'm I feel lucky to be publishing it now when there are more books and there are more readers um, and it can sort of find its own place. Like it doesn't necessarily need to uh, stand in for anything or take on any of the, the sort of like big questions within the community. Um, and you know, as you pointed out, there's also so much interest in works from Asia too, like anime, K-pop, stuff like that. So it, it just seems like all of this can only produce more, uh, whether it's stuff that I personally like is a, is a totally different question, but I think that having that, um, abundance sort of frees us from, uh, kind of more narrow approaches, to thinking about representation or, or things like that. Like once you have enough, you no longer have to kind of demand representation. You can sort of demand, um, uh, more, I don't want to say conflict, but just, um, like a more eclectic representations or or different kinds of representations. And I think that'll be really exciting to see as the community grows. So I think with that, that's a great place to end our
1: conversation with Hwasu, author of Stay True, A Memoir. Well, I actually have two more questions for you, uh, which are, uh, where can people find your work?
0: And what do you think the next project might be? Um, I guess social media tends to be the easiest way. Um, so it's, I'm just at Huashu, H-U-A-H-S-U, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. You can also go to my website, by hua shu, uh just B-Y-H-U-A-H-S-U.com. There are a lot of um, uh, secret web pages on my site to keep you entertained, uh, a lot of rabbit holes to go down uh after this i'm not sure i am working on an essay collection called imposter syndrome but i'm still very early in that process but it's just sort of about um, teaching learning writing uh, immigrant culture kind of like how we learn by mimicry and how we learn by imposture so uh still pretty early but uh that's that's the next project that i'm uh, contractually obliged to do <laughs> Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at
1: NickRIGordon, that's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. that's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at The New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on, favorite, on all of your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us, continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for, for who's coming up on the show. But before then, Wah, thank you so much for joining me today.